Shall we bow in prayer? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for another day, another beautiful winter's day. And we thank Thee for that presence of mind and understanding that to gather around Thy Word is to follow the directions of, of the Scriptures. Even though we gather sometimes or often to think of family and friends and meet and gather and visit, that we would come together around the feet of Jesus, the greatest teacher of all times. We ask that thou wouldst be at our little gathering here this morning. Give us that leading of the Holy Spirit that thy word is promised. When thy son Jesus left this world, he promised us that he would be with us. He wouldn't leave us. He wouldn't forsake us. And we know that as the centuries have gone by, that this promise has been kept on his part. And we thank you for these things. We thank you for the completeness of the word and the steadiness and the power, power with men and power with God, as, as we just sang in the song. Be with our speaking brother this morning. Give him understanding of these scriptures and the depths, knowledge and understanding and faith that come from this word. Watch over all those that possibly might be grieving or hurting in one way or another, those that can't make it to services because of health reasons or old age or distance, whatever it might be, those that might be traveling, those that might be on missionary trips. Watch over our governments. Watch over our faraway governments and our, our nearer governments, our counties and our schools and all those things that are in order and that make a society and a system function properly. So again, we ask the leading of the Holy Spirit this morning and be with us as we pray together that prayer thy son Jesus taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Someone have another song to continue with?
grace and mercy and peace from God our Heavenly Father, but to all of us, so often, as I've already so many times, it's come here and this morning it seems even even more so that way there's to be a text, but even looking at it, sometimes it seems like, well, there's a little bit here, but even sure what's even pertinent in it, but God willing, we'll look into it, <clears throat> the text, but the verse, it's found in the 18th chapter of Proverbs, <clears throat> 10th verse, it happened to be the verse that was on the calendar that happens a verse each day. Impossible, I think, for any of us. I suppose there is some people even in this country who perhaps are so isolated. I find it hard to believe, but be watching how the world seems to be. I have to admit, I don't know whether I should or not, but I see humor in it because it seems so ridiculous to my mind how people <clears throat> are looking at some of these things. <clears throat> And I see even my natural reasoning can come up with the idea that this makes no sense, let alone when you add on that God says that, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He tells us that he knows that in the world we will have tribulation, but be not afraid because he has overcome the world. He's promised that he will be with us till the end of this world. This maybe makes no sense to anybody but mine but mine <clears throat> he makes those promises that I just talked about and then we can read that portion and I probably can't turn to it right off but there is that woman who comes <clears throat> and she wipes his feet or she washes his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and then anoints him with that precious ointment and the, the Pharisee he questions it and Jesus makes that promise that wherever this word is spoken, what that woman has done, that story will be told. And this is just in my mind, but in the promises that God makes in the scripture, that seems like such a minor one. And yet we see, and we've seen, I've heard people speak on that text, and even now this morning, I just brought it out in that context we see that promise being fulfilled over and over and over again. And my mind can even come up with that, that if God is so faithful to fulfill that promise that is in the context compared to salvation seems so minor, can we not trust as Christians that even if things were so that our natural mind would struggle or not be able to understand how it is that we would be taken care of. We have those promises of God that we can turn to that he will be with us. And and the reality of it is maybe the worst that it can be is that we would be killed or die. And as Christians, as Paul says, to live where Christ and to die is we will go on to glory. This verse, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. <clears throat> we have even just that name of Christ that we can turn to. And we have those things that would, would tell us that we would look to him. And sometimes we can say that thing and, and it is said so often that it can almost just become a saying or a trite saying. And I would hope that each and every one of us, that God would be so gracious that he would put those things in our life, whether each of us is probably something different. 
but that he would put those things in our life so that we could come to understand the meaning of even that little thing. That we could understand that no matter what it is that is going on around us, that the focus of our life would be on Christ. And it doesn't make sense to our natural mind so often. We think of the story of when the fiery serpents came among the children of Israel. <clears throat> and if they bit them and they were dying. And God tells Moses to to put a serpent on a pole. And if they were to just look at that, they were healed. And there's so many things in that story that, one, we see that it would look like that the very problem that they were dealing with is what they were to look at on the pole. And we wonder why is that? And yet we see that it is this human beings that was the cause of all our problems in Adam and Eve, and yet it was in that form that Christ came on the cross and that we were to look at. And then we would think that it would be more prudent to look down and avoid those snakes on the ground instead of looking up at a pole. And that's where our natural minds go so often in this world. We would look and think, oh, there's that problem over there. I can avoid, I'll avoid that, and I'll avoid this one, and I will... Instead of just focusing on Christ and trusting that He knows and He will look after us. For a text, I'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I'll turn to the 21st chapter and I'll read from the 33rd verse through to the 41st. Reading in Jesus' name. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it about and digged a wine press in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, excuse me, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of in their season. And then if we skip down to the 45th verse, we see, and this is why, as I mentioned already, I struggle. It says, And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he spake of them. So we see that this, and when we read it, we can see even Christ portrayed there and how it is that he came, and he came to the children the chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, and he came to them and it tells us that he even cried over Jerusalem and half said that how often would he have gathered them as a hen gathered his, but they would not. And we know that it was his desire that they would believe on him and trust in that message that he brought and that salvation that he brought. 
and yet they rejected him. And we know, reading this, and if we turn to the Old Testament, we can see how it is that there is prophets that the books even are named after them. And we know that even before that, there was Moses and Elijah and Elisha and all these men that came and God sent them to bring that message of truth. And we see that there was times when the children of Israel were following what God wanted. And then there are times when they were turning away from God. And it strikes my mind interesting, even as I say that. And we look at those ones, and maybe it's just me. Those ones that were there in those times when the children of Israel were turned away from God and when were and perhaps they were even the ones that were persecuted the worst or that were killed lots of them and it's interesting how I know their names more more better that's a bad term I know their names and are more acquainted with them than those ones that were there when things were going well and those names are mentioned in the Bible already I also but we know that when Elijah was here, he even felt that he was so on his own, he says to God, I only am left." And God had to tell him that no. I believe it is that there is 7,000 others that had not bowed their knee to Baal. And yet I'm sure all of us know that story of Elijah. And even... This text here that I read, there's a portion in Isaiah that would seem to mirror it quite closely. And we all, I'm sure, know that name of Isaiah. And he was a man that God used powerfully, and he gave him great insight. And it, people even say that the book of Isaiah, we can read it, and it reads much more like one of the Gospels and brings that message of salvation through grace and faith in what Christ has done. And we know that all of them are that way. And yet, we would understand that Isaiah was killed because he was a prophet of God, and they didn't like that message that he was bringing. In the fifth chapter here, and, and I will just read this too, because it, it speaks also of a vineyard and God speaking to his children, this is the fifth chapter. It says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitant of Jerusalem and man of Judah, men of Judah, Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked at that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, 
and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they bring rain, they rain no rain upon it. And we see that God points out how it is that he did the best that could be done. And it is a marvel in reality when we look at those things and we see around us in the world and we understand that this world that we are just a little speck on is in the universe, this natural universe is just a little tiny speck in that. And we have a God that by saying created all that and then mankind comes and we reject him. And it is something that we can see the patience and mercy of our God, how it is that he over and over and over again, it tells us in our text there that he sent husbandmen, or I mean, sorry, he sent servants to get the fruit of the vineyard. And they beat them and sent them away and killed some, and he does it again. And we know even as it says, he was speaking to the Pharisees and chief priests. And it is speaking of those prophets that God sent in the Old Testament that we even mentioned some of them. Elijah, Jeremiah. We could read all those minor prophets. Jonah. God sent all these men with that same message to turn to God. And yet, so often the people killed them. Or if they didn't kill them, they wanted to kill them. Going back to Elijah, and it's a bit of a marvel when I think about it in my natural mind. Elijah, God sends him and he meets with King Ahab. And we know the story of what happened on Mount Carmel there, how it was Elijah against all the prophets of Baal and God came down and burnt up the altar and the sacrifice and he has all the prophets of Baal killed. He had prayed and and it had not rained for three and a half years after the incident on Mount Carmel. He prays again and God sends rain and he had had all those things happen in well, at the most three and a half years, but the last was just in a short period of time. Then Ahab goes home and he tells Jezebel what what Elijah has done. And she sends word to Elijah that she's going to kill him before the end of the day. And what does Elijah do? He, He turns tail and runs away because he's scared. And we see human nature and how it is. My mind says this man saw all those things and God used him so powerfully he should have no worries about what Jezebel is going to do. And yet, he runs. And I don't think that any of us, well I know we're no different, we have that same human nature. And it, no matter who we are, whether we are the the least in the kingdom of heaven or the greatest it isn't in our ability 
it is in what God gives us the strength to do. And as much as perhaps we would wish it was different, I believe that he allows us at times even to be like Elijah, that we would not stand when we were faced with something, that we would run so that we could be given that teaching and that understanding and it could become not just something that's a theory to us, but we know that our strength is not in our ability, but our strength is in God's ability. We are in a time, we live in a time where we see that as our nation, and even in nations that are close to us, many of us have lots of ties even to the states or even to some of the countries in Europe and even other places with friends. And we see that so much of the world seems to be turning further and further away from God. And we can start, perhaps just me, feeling like it is such an overwhelming thing, the evil that is out there, that how is it that we could even stand against that or deal with that or bucket? We don't have to. Jesus says he has overcome those things. Turn to him. And he tells us that, well, it's when he's telling them about what they will do to him, how they will kill him, crucify him. And he tells them that if they do that to him, this isn't the verbatim, obviously, but if they do that to him, what will be done to his servants? We could perhaps face things that are very hard for our natural flesh to deal with. And it would have no ability to even begin to stand to those things. And it is hard for me to believe when we read those stories perhaps in history or in Fox's Book of Martyrs or something, how it is that those ones and the faith that they were given in the face of persecution. And we read stories about some that went singing praises to God to their deaths. And even stories of how God used that to turn the hearts of those that were killing them even, that they could see that there was something different there. And even the Bible records us, and perhaps George even mentioned it last week, about how it was that Saul, or Apostle Paul, how it was that he witnessed Stephen being stoned, And I don't think there's any question that there was a difference there. That he would have had to see that there was something about this man that was different from your average person. And my mind says, I sit here and I struggle to sometimes think of how is it that I can even get up and speak. And then it's like, well, if you can't even trust that God can give words when he's been so faithful, how is it that you could ever think that if there is something, somebody threatening, excuse me, that if you don't deny your faith or turn away from God that we're going to kill you, how is it that we could be given faith for that? But we know if we read these stories, God has promised and he will do it. And even 
if I turn back to that story of Elijah there, <clears throat> we know how it how it continues on then. God doesn't just say, well, you think you're on your own, so I'm going to leave you on your own. Carry on. No, God comes to him and he shows him his power. He comes and it says there is a wind that broke the rocks and there's an earthquake and there's a great fire. But God isn't in those things. God showed Elijah how it was that God works. And it says there was a still small voice. So often we, we <clears throat> and it's just natural thinking and natural reasoning and perhaps in some ways it's making fun of God and, and Christians. But there's the thought that, well, if I really was doing something God, God would strike you down with lightning or something like that. God doesn't work that way. We see that God is gracious. And sometimes his patience we marvel at, or I marvel at. I was talking with someone this week, and they were saying that they see the things going on in this world, and we compare it to, well, even, I don't know if they use Sodom and Gomorrah, but the things that it would appear was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the things that were going on before the flood, and how it was that God destroyed them. He destroyed the world with a flood. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And we look at what's going on around us, and I honestly don't think that it's any better today than it was in those times. And we wonder why it is that God allows it to go on, and I don't know, but I see that he is a patient God. He is, here as it says, he sent other servants. He sent more than the first. And perhaps, I don't know, but each and every one of us, we have our place in this world. And I would hope that God would give us strength to be a witness of what Christ can do. And I think we look around even at this goings on with um, COVID-19 virus that's happening and how the world is dealing with it. And I think it could even come to this point that no matter how ridiculous that people are getting, if you're not getting caught up in it and acting like it's not the end of the world, that you could face people at the very least ridiculing you because you're being so stupid and not caring about others and panicking. And perhaps even those simple things are a, a statement that we trust God. We trust this word. And no matter if people would want to persecute us, we can't do otherwise because we know that he has promised he will care for us. <clears throat> But I also think that as Christians, and turning back to that portion in Isaiah where he says that he fenced it and gathered the stones out, and we know that those stones and that fence, and it talks about it as a hedge there as it goes further along, I believe it is speaking of this word of God. 
This word of God is that hedge that's even out there further that protects us, that we can trust in. And those stones that he's gotten rid of, I believe that those are those things that would stop this word from going deep. There's the, the parable of the the parable of the sower. It tells that the one the one ground that he sowed in was the the stony ground. And it tells us then when he's explaining that parable <clears throat> it says that um, but he that received the seed in the stony place the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy received it. Yet he hath not root in himself, but during, but dur, but for, dureth for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, and by and by he is offended. And so we see that those stones do not allow this word to go deep and take root. And I think that it would be anything that would cause a heart perhaps to be offended or perhaps to not fully trust in this word and allow that God would get deep into our hearts, that we would perhaps accept God but not give him our all, God says that he will take those stones out. And I believe that that is even speaking of those things that would cause offense, that we could... He has given us the ability to deal with those things. He's given us that, that we could go and seek forgiveness from others. And we can make things right. And when we look at that, and we know when we've experienced that, that things have been taken care of, and that God has removed those things, how it is that that word becomes precious, and it can grow deeper into our hearts. And he tells us there in Isaiah that when, when it doesn't bring forth grapes but brings forth wild grapes, that he will allow that those, the hedge will be taken and knocked down. And I think that he is telling us that if the fruit that is coming forth, if there's a problem, that he will allow that there will be, if I would say it, that this word would be spoken perhaps wrong. And my mind turns to, there's a portion in Ezekiel, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's the 20th chapter, and it tells about these ones, and it tells about prophets that would prophesy from their own thoughts. And it tells that they will, <coughs> they will build walls, and they will use untempered mortar. And it says, um, saying unto them which have daubed it with untempered mortar that it shall fall. And I believe that we are those stones that it is speaking of. That we are even that wall that it speaks of there. And when it talks about untempered mortar, I believe that it is the love of God is that mortar that holds the stones together. An untempered mortar, I believe, is, is if we try and hold things together with our natural abilities or with natural reasoning or with natural love. I don't know why this has been on my heart so much the last while and I get almost self-conscious talking about it. 
But I believe that the world is trying very hard to redefine that word love. And it gets so that we hear it and we say it. And I would hope that God would give us to understand when he says love what it means. The world would want to say that love is an emotion of warm and friendly and accepting of what someone is. God does not define it that way. And I read this portion and I will read it again. It's found in First John there. And it's the end of the fourth and the beginning of the fifth chapter. And it says, This commandment have we from him, that he who love, loveth God loveth his brother also. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And every one that loveth him that begat loveth him that is begotten also. So it's saying that if we are of God, if we love Christ, we will love his children also. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So there we have what love is. It is that we would treat others according to how God says. And the most loving thing that we can do for someone else is to walk according to what God would instruct us to do. It is that line that I think lots of so-called Christianity, or maybe it isn't that so much that as the world would want to portray that this is how Christians are, that yes, they're against, and we could pick anything, but say homosexuality, they're against it, so they hate all those people who would be there and so they're just horrible people because they hate them and they don't have or want to recognize that no living Christianity is not that way and that there is and we say it this way that that we would hate the sin but love the sinner and it is those people that are caught up in those grievous sins that we need to love the most but it isn't being loving to them by accepting and telling them that that's fine. That is not loving at all. Loving them and telling them that God desires to have your heart and does not want you to live in those things. He wants you to live according to his word. If we truly love someone, we bring this message of what Christ says. And what God says, and it tells us, in that third chapter of Colossians, it tells us this way that, um, and I will read this sort of backwards, it says, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So this doesn't give us any leeway. This is in the fourth chapter, sixth verse of Colossians. It doesn't give us that, well, this is how you talk to some people and then there's other people that are different. This says, that ye may know how to ye ought to answer every man. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. As Christians, this is how we are to speak to others. And we know that there is much spoken of the grace of God, and how gracious God is, and how merciful and loving. <clears throat> to the point that there's people that say, well, he's such a gracious God that how... 
can there any bad happen? And how is it that he would, there can't be really a hell because if he's such a loving, gracious God, there's no way he could send anyone there. But it tells us that it would be that message of the grace of God, but it would be seasoned with salt. And we know that that salt, I believe it is speaking of the righteousness of God. And I could go into that in more detail, but I won't. But when we speak to someone and share with them how righteous God is, and the perfection that he demands or requires, it is absolute. And he is absolutely perfect. And we can't come close. And I remember speaking with one man one time, and he said, that's a pretty high bar. And I think... I brought up that part where it says that um, God says that no, now this isn't all, but he says that no adulterer will enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he also says that if anyone looks on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. And it is Christ explaining or opening up, I guess, those Old Testament, even Ten Commandment laws. And it isn't doing it so that we would feel hopeless. It's so that we could feel hopeless in our own ability to keep those things and understand the righteousness that God requires of us. And it is our duty as Christians that we would explain God in such a way that we could explain to people and, and share with them according to the scripture what it is that God requires of us and the perfection that is necessary. And if we start to see that and the Spirit can reveal to a heart how short we fall of that, then a heart can start to understand and, and feel the desire and realize why it is that we need to be partakers of that grace of God. When we understand that God demands perfection that is so far above anything that we can accomplish and that we are, the best we can do is of almost zero value, then we start to understand why it is that we need to have a gracious God and why it is that we need to turn to Him humbly and why we need to seek that forgiveness that there is in Christ and why it is that that robe of righteousness that we speak of it can't be what we have done but it has to be what Christ did and that we can take it for ours and when we understand that then we begin to understand how loving God really is and why it is that he has to put a distinction between good and evil and how it is that it is the right thing to do and the just thing to do that he would put that that is evil and put it in hell. I heard someone say, maybe a couple times I've heard them say this statement and it seems odd, but I think it is true. He said so many people say that they want to go to heaven, but they really don't want God there when they get there. Because the God that we find in the Bible is not what they're looking for. They're looking for something that is, seems wonderful to our natural mind here in this world. And, and we see things around us that, and each one of us probably has something different. 
that we look here in this world and think that, wow, that is wonderful. If I could do that, it would, our natural mind says, well, it would seem like heaven and what, whatever it is, whether it's in the mountains someplace or some car or some horse or whatever it is. But those things are things that are of our natural mind and they are not what it is that God says is good because it is of this world and it is tainted by sin and I can't comprehend it because we are sinful beings and how it is that we could be in a place where there is no sin and how it is that we could live I struggle even to think about it, let alone put it into words. My mind is so natural and it is so prone to think, I guess I'll put it this way. I read in Corinthians there in that chapter where it speaks about charity. And it tells about charity and it says, says all these things. It says, does not, is not puffed up, envieth not is not unseemingly, seeketh not her own, is not e easily provoked. And we can think, well, we can kind of come into doing some of those things. And it says, thinketh no evil. And I don't know, maybe your heads are different than mine, but there is constantly evil thoughts in my head. And I marvel how it is that we could be or live in a place. And it's, God says that he will give us a new body. And how it is that we can have something that it isn't desiring to be sinful or having sinful thoughts or sinful desires steady. How is that? And we can have the most wonderful situation here in this world. And it, I guess it speaks very quickly when, if we can understand this, how bad, not bad, what a poor idea of, of nunneries and, and monasteries and those are of going to separate us from the world and getting away from sin. Because we can completely separate ourselves from sin and yet we have this right there. It's as close to us as our being and it doesn't matter whether we're living cloistered away from the world or not. We still have to deal with our own minds. And I don't think that it's making a judgment call to say that your minds are as bad as mine and mine are as bad as anybody else's. It's what we are. It's our inheritance from Adam. And we know here that from our text it tells that the owner sent his own son. And we as Christians have that privilege of knowing that he came and it's perhaps a very odd way of putting it, but thank goodness he was killed because it is what allows that payment would be made for those things that go on in my head and that I do because his blood was shed to cover those things. And it doesn't end there. We know that story that he rose again from the dead. And we say it in the Apostles' Creed and send it into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty and comes to judge the quick and the dead. And I pray that each one of us could be known as those, as it says, quick or living, 
that there would be living faith in our hearts. And when we meet our Savior, whether it is when we die here or if he was to come back in our lifetime, that we could, with complete assurance, address him in that way as my Savior and know that he is our friend and our brother. And I can't comprehend that. And no matter what goes on in this world, whether we do or don't have to walk as, as it tells about these servants here, that God sends those to bring that message of Christ and the world doesn't like it. And it says some are stoned and some are killed. Perhaps it will happen in our lifetime that we may have to face those things. And we know that in places in the world, there are those that do face those things. And trust those words that are recorded for us in this Bible, that God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we can trust even that one verse each and every day, no matter how bad things that I started with there in Proverbs, that we can run and be safe. And it can, the name of Christ, it can be our strong power and that we are safe there. And this word of God is sure and we can trust it for our salvation and for our day-to-day -day walk that he is there and he knows and he cares. Name. Amen. Shall we close with the benediction? May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.